be with you this morning. One of the downsides of the pandemic is I forgot how to tie a bow tie, uh, and I typically don't remember until I get ready to preach, and so I had to, you're stuck with a regular tie this morning. I apologize for that. Um, we're in Exodus chapter 14. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open to Exodus chapter 14. If you're not familiar where the book of Exodus is, it's the second book in the Bible. It goes Genesis and then Exodus. We're going to be looking at how God gets glory. Exodus 14 is when Israel is in between being delivered from the bondage and slavery of Egypt at the Passover and right before they cross over into the Red Sea. And glory, God's glory is the, the heartbeat of the Bible. It's what keeps the whole thing stitched together. It's why we're, we were created. It's why we're recreated in Jesus Christ. And it's grand and magnificent. But what about the nitty-gritty of daily life? How does God get glory Monday through Friday in our 9 to 5? That's what we're going to see this morning. So open to Exodus chapter 14, and I'll be reading the whole chapter beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zaphon you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let the Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. 
And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is God's word. Father God, as we go before you to hear from your word, I pray that you would remove distractions, uh, whatever it is that's in our mind that prevents us from hearing you, uh, from seeing you by faith in our hearts, and from applying that to ourselves and our lives, Lord. Would you make this truth uh, real to all of us, heart, soul, mind, and strength, according to the promises given to us in your word by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in order for us to know how God gets glory, we need to know what glory is. Glory is a really big Bible word, but it's, it's not a word that we regularly use in English. But it's a concept that we're familiar with. Because the Hebrew word for glory is, is kavod or, or weightiness. So when someone has a lot of power, in English we'll say, man, they're throwing their weight around. Or if somebody has a great deal of expertise in a particular field or social circle, we'll say that person carries a lot of weight. Or you can think about an Olympian on the number one spot at the podium, with the gold medal around their neck, their flag raised above every other country's flag, and their anthem playing. That athlete is getting glory. So when God says he's going to get glory, He's saying he's going to throw his weight around. He's going to demonstrate that he's the one that belongs on the number one spot on the podium. He's going to swat Pharaoh down from his self-imposed rule and put himself up there. Not because he somehow doesn't have it in and of himself, because, but because it's improper for us as his creatures not to grant glory to our creator. And God gets glory through a number of ways in the passage. The first is through his plan. Go back to the verses 2 through 4. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea. 
In front of Baal Zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. This is military language. This isn't just an ordinary plan that God is executing. This, this is a military maneuver. He's going to take the Israelites and set them out in such a way that Pharaoh will think that they're trapped in. He's going he's to dangle Israel out like a mouse before a cat so that Pharaoh comes to chase them, and he's going to squash them. And then Pharaoh will realize, like Admiral Akbar, that it's a trap! It's too late! And he will get glory. God is going to use the weak, unprepared, motley crew of recently escaped slaves, people who have had no identity, no plans, no power, no position of authority for 400 years. He's going to use this group of people to smash the greatest military empire in the world at the time. He's going to use the weak things to shame the strong. This is how God's plan works. But God's plans aren't always easy. Uh, there's a gentleman I, I greatly admire who, after faithful service and ministry for over two decades, was terminated um, through no real apparent fault of his own. And he was reflecting on this in, in one of his prayer letters. And he, he reflected on Jeremiah 29.11, a passage that you may be familiar with. It sounds so sweet and good. Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Good, beautiful promises. But then he goes on to point out in his reflection that Jeremiah was given these words in the light of national collapse, foreign invasion. Jeremiah himself was plagued and beaten and thrown in pits and prisons. Jeremiah would live to see Solomon's temple, one of the greatest uh, architectural works of the ancient world, beautiful, overlaid with gold and wood, splendor of design, the jewel of Israel. Jeremiah would live to see that temple flattened and then be taken into exile. And you think, huh, some plans, huh, God, right? These are your plans. These are the plans you have for me. You know, you you get together with your family once every four years. There's one opportunity every couple years where you and the kids and the grandkids all go to the same place in the same location, and last year those plans were wiped out. So you rescheduled for this year, only to find out that the knee surgery that your doctor has, has been talking to you about for some time now has become immediate, You have to get it done, and you're going to miss out. So it's going to be another four years before you get to be in one place with your family all at the same time. And you think, some some plans. Huh, Lord? These these are your plans? And we're tempted to think, you know, if God, if you would just pull back the curtain, if you would just show us the the play-by-play of what you were doing, then I would be okay with these difficulties. If you could just let me know what was going on behind the scenes, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. But Israel had the play-by-play. God tells them in verses 1 to 4, this is what I'm going to do. And then God does that in verses 5 to 9. That's exactly what happens. And then how does Israel respond to God's plan? Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
Things are going exactly according to God's plan, and the people panic. They freak out. One of the gracious things that God does for us is he actually does tell us what's going to happen in our lives. He, he doesn't provide the nitty-gritty play-by-play. He doesn't tell us, you know, who we're going to marry or where we're going to go to school or how our kids are going to turn out or any number of the juicy tidbits and details we'd like to know. But he gives us the same overarching storyline of Israel and of Jesus. What's, what's true for Christ is true for the Christians. And we see this over and over again in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem in Mark chapter 10. And in 1033, he pulls the disciples aside again for the third time and says, listen, guys, here's the plan of salvation. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities and rulers. I will be crucified. And then I will rise from the dead on the third day. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus and the disciples go to Jerusalem. Jesus is handed over and betrayed. He's falsely accused, a rigged trial. And right as everything is going exactly according to plan, the disciples freak out. They panic. Everybody runs. Everybody deserts him. Nobody stays. Why is it that when things go exactly according to God's plan, we panic? Why is that? Well, look down at verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? We freak out when things go exactly according to God's plan because somebody has to die in order for God's plans to be accomplished. God's great plan of salvation, whether this is the, the, the mighty saving work of Jesus on the cross, whether this is the, the figurative little deaths that we have to die every day in taking up our own cross, dying to our reputation among our peers when we name the name of Jesus and then have to parse out what that means and yes, I believe this and no, I don't believe that and they walk away confused. We have to die to, to our pride when we have to go to our spouse for the 10th time that week and ask for forgiveness for getting angry at things that shouldn't make us angry. Whether we have to die to the instantaneous pleasure that sin offers because we know that there is a greater consequence on the other side, whether that sin has been plaguing us for a year or two years or 10 years or 30 years. Whether it's these figurative deaths that Jesus calls us to as disciples or the very real threat of actual death that brothers and sisters face around the world. God's plan of salvation requires someone to die. And death is protracted. It's embarrassing. It's, it's painful. You lose all control. We freak out when things go exactly according to God's plan because it involves death. That's what the Israelites learned at the Passover. They had to have the blood of the lamb put over their doorpost in order to survive God's judgment. But in spite of our panic, God still gets glory through his plan, in spite of our panic, by defeating our enemies. Our fits and spurts, our emotional hiccups, and spiritual temper tantrums don't prevent God from caring for us and loving us and executing his plan. Look at verse 13 to 14 and then 30. And Moses said to the people, fear not. 
Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. In response to this great panic, Moses says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop looking around at your immediate visible circumstances that you can see and turn your eyes to the Lord God, who is the controller of those circumstances, even though you can't necessarily see him. He wanted to take their fear and trembling from being on Pharaoh and his army as an object of dread and redirect it to God as an object of reverence and awe and wonder. That was the first step. And they did that. That's what they did. It's, they, they turned their eyes from their circumstances to God and his mediator. Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, the radical thing about the connection between Moses and the people of Israel, it's, it's, it's not evident when, when we read it, but if you go back and look at verse 15 and 10, something really strange pops out. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. But, but Moses didn't cry out to God. Who is it that cried out to God? Go back to verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. See, God's people and God's mediator are so intertwined that when we cry out, it's as if God's mediator cries out. When the people of Israel were were so dogged by doubt and fear, that they lifted up their voices in exasperation. What God heard was Moses crying out to him, and he responded to him. See, this singular act is so significant because the same act that destroyed and judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians is the same one that delivered the Israelites. The, f- the flood of judgment came down upon the Egyptians while the Israelites walked across on dry ground. What made the difference between these two groups of people? Why was one group judged and another one was justified? Why was one group deluged and the other one delivered? That's because of how they're related to God and his mediator. See, the Israelites, going back to the Passover, had to learn what it was like to walk by faith. See, the first and second and third and fourth and fifth, and all the plagues, one through nine, up to the, up to the tenth were different. Plagues one through nine, God said to the Egyptians, listen, I'm going to make a distinction between Goshen, where the Israelites live, where my people live, and the Egyptians. God would send a plague, and there would be a distinction. But when you got to the tenth plague, God said, now listen, you're going to need to identify and believe in my promises ahead of the judgment before the plague comes. That's part of what the Passover was about. The the Israelites had to obtain the promises of God by faith and apply them to their own hearts and lives. They had to put the blood over the doorpost before judgment came 
in order to demonstrate their difference. And now their belief in God's promises that was made manifest in the Passover is being tied to the God's mediator. God's promises and his mediator are coming into one. And so when we see in Moses, it's just a glimpse of the goodness and the beauty of Jesus, who all of God's deep promises are condensed and boiled down into a person and not just a proposition, who when Jesus cries out, it's as if we cry out. And when we cry out, it's as if Jesus cries out. We are so united by faith to Jesus that God sees us through his mediator. And the singular act that could bring both judgment for one group of people and can also justify another, and we see in the cross. Because God gets glory through an even greater plan of salvation in spite of our greatest panic as he defeats our greatest enemies on the cross, resulting in our belief and our deliverance and our belonging to him in his goodness and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, we so often find ourselves in situations like the Israelites where we have believed, we have appropriated your promises, and yet you put us into situations that require ongoing faith, and we have weak and trembling faith, Lord. I pray, Lord, that that when we tremble and when we cry out, we would remember that we are united to your servant Jesus, the true and greater Moses, who delivers us in a bigger exodus from that of sin and death and bondage of all those things. We thank you for this goodness, Lord. For those of us that don't know you, Lord, I pray that these words would would be a resounding wake-up call, that those here who, who don't know you, who don't seek you, would see what it means to have an advocate, to have a mediator, to have a man on their side, Jesus, the God-man, whose blood is effective for forgiving and saving. Lord, as we go throughout this week, we pray that, I pray that you would show us clearly uh, the outworkings of your plans in our lives. Lord, help us to take up our cross and discipleship uh, because you are good and because the little tiny figurative deaths you call us to produce great and abundant life on the other side, even when we can't feel it. Give us the faith to know that there is life even after death. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.